Welcome to the Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View. I'm your host, Joshua Holo, and it is my great pleasure to welcome as my guest, Muhammad Daraushe, the Director of Planning, Equality, and Shared Society at Givat Chaviva, the Center for Shared Society in Israel. Muhammad, welcome to the Bully Pulpit. Thank you, Josh. It's uh, great to be with you and uh, to uh, be in touch with your audience as well. Thank you. We are going to speak about shared society in Israel. Mm -hmm. But in reading materials and learning about your very important work, I've noticed that the word coexistence, dukiyum, is not the way you describe your work. Is that right? Correct. In fact, this has been an effort of mine over the past maybe decade or so. In October 2000, there were clashes between Jewish and Arab citizens in Israel, between the police and Arab citizens, that left 13 Arab citizens killed. And the industry of coexistence was flourishing until that moment. But it failed to stop this violence. So when, when I start looking at what is this industry doing, I, I discovered two arguments. One, which is mostly a Jewish argument of coexistence. Uh, and many Arab citizens say, no, 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 we want equality. Uh, most Arab citizens would say, if the Jewish Israelis will give us equality, we will give them the prize of coexistence. Most Israeli Jews say exactly the opposite. If the Arabs give us coexistence, we will give them the prize of equality. And they are seen as two ends of a spectrum. Which comes first? And this has been sort of the chicken or the egg discussion. What I bring into the discourse here is that it's not either or. It's a, a actually a parallel, two parallel tracks that we need to move with them on the same track. You will not find true, indigenous, proud Arab citizens willing to engage in coexistence if it does not change the unequal reality today. Understandably. And Israelis, perhaps also understandably, feel threatened in a way that prevents them from fully engaging with the other side of the chicken and the egg. And you're trying to go between them and make both of them happen at the same time. I assume this involves a great deal of building trust. It's you know, we spent many years, uh, the first maybe three decades of the life of Israel, working on trust building. and which was called in, in, in conflict resolution theory, it's called the contact theory, where we eat hummus together. We even called it at some point the hummus coexistence. The more you're in touch with each other, the more yeah, trust which you is get. still valid. It's still a very important element. You cannot build a shared society without the contact theory, without building that relationship to convince people that the others do not have horns, do not right, have tails. Right. They're human beings. You can spend the day with them. They will not poison your food. They'll not stab you if you share a room with them. They are human beings that you can have laughs and jokes and, and so on. But at some point, we substituted that or added to another, another layer. And the second layer was the, a dialogue which started discussing historic narratives. Where do we differ? So it's not just about being nice to each other. It's not just about enjoying each other's company. It's not just about coming to a day and discovering that Jews are wonderful people or Arabs are wonderful people, but we still have issues. We still have differences that we need to overcome. So then our industry for almost two additional decades 
moved into the narrative dialogue. But the problem with narrative dialogue, if it's not substantiated with the contact aspect, it could relate to identifying and highlighting the differences. Right. And right. you start going back with the narrative, right. all the way back, who did Abraham want to sacrifice? Right, right. <laughs> and kids argue this as if it happened yesterday. Right, of course, of course. So the, the new element that I've been introducing in this field is the concept of shared interests. Beyond just talking about niceties, beyond talking about the differences, we have the same buses to ride, the same universities to go to, the same taxes to pay, same taxes to pay, the same representation, the same environment, the same political system. We need to have working solutions to the problems, and you realize that working solutions are not magical. There's no magic solutions. Working solutions are accumulative solutions that you change reality minute by minute, little bit by little bit. It's one classroom here with another classroom there. It's one government agency here with another government agency there. You pair one Arab municipality with one Jewish municipality. They, they collaborate on a, a road system. They collaborate in an environmental project. They collaborate out of self-interest, right. not out of liking the other, right, right. but that working together, that superordinate goal that brings them to work together allows afterwards the concept of accepting and legitimizing the, the presence of other. That's the concept of shared society. It's not just about coexistence, which is, which can tolerate. The concept of coexistence can tolerate the horse and the rider. Yes, right. but, but no one, one wants to be the horse. <laughs> exactly. And at the end of the ride, they both right. enjoy the ride. But at the end of the ride, one goes to the barn and eats hay, right. and, and one goes, goes to the castle and, and eats a steak. <laughs> so to be clear for the, for the sake of the audience, and for me, the purview of your theory of shared society and the real work that we're going to talk about, about how you uh, develop and implement the shared society, is restricted to the citizens of Israel as opposed to uh, Palestinians who are not citizens of Israel. Is that correct? Or correct. You know, uh, I, I uh, depart from the assumption of a two-state solution. Right. That there will be a Palestinian state that will live in peace. Side will by have side its own the civil society and its own exactly. needs and its own population. And the Oslo negotiations pretty much drafted the future borders between Israel and the uh, Palestinian future state, which more or less will be around 1967 borders Roughly, with corrections, yes. without corrections. Ultimately, they'll get to there. But that assumes that almost 20% of Israel's society will continue to, to be, be Arab, Arab citizens. Uh, in Arab citizens living in a country that defines itself as a Jewish state, right? But also as a democracy, right? And that's the marriage that we need to try to find. That's the you know with the Palestinians we need to negotiate a divorce agreement. Exactly. The healthy, if not vast, majority of world Jews and Israeli Jews ultimately favor a two-state solution. I think that there's an appreciation of the fact that it needs to be a healthy divorce. With the Arab citizens, we need to it's negotiate a, a marriage, a marriage agreement, agreement, the civic notion of minority-majority relations. It's not just about social and economic equality and social and economic integration. It's also about power sharing. Yes, of course. It's about political power sharing. What's the potential of an Arab citizen being in government? We've been there. In 2007, there was an Arab uh, minister in the cabinet. Ghalib Majadli, his name was, still is. Uh, and he was the minister of culture, science, and sports for right. two years. With respect to the Arab minority in the Jewish state, I want to ask you your feelings, your philosophical and your human feelings, about the viability of a Jewish democracy. 
I'm not Jewish, so I cannot talk about the Jewish viability, the Jewish democracy from the moral aspect. Okay. I can talk about it from being on the receiving end of this formula. Perfect. I have an issue with the definition of the state of Israel as a Jewish state. I have no problem with Israel being the homeland of the Jewish people. And there's a big distinction between being a Jewish state and being the homeland of the Jewish people. I think the Jewish people deserve to have their homeland in the land of Israel and not in Uganda or not somewhere else. But I also think and know that this is my homeland. Of course. And that this political club called the State of Israel has to talk to me in civic language in telling me that it's my homeland, it's my country. Today, Israel says to me, I'm not your country. I'm the state of the Jewish people only. I'm not the state of my citizens. But as we know, Zionists believe ultimately in something that will not reduce to something you believe in because they are Zionists. Correct. But until now, no one has been able to spell to me, as a non-Jew, what is a Jewish state is. Fair enough. Is it Haredi state? Is it Orthodox is it a, a reform? Right. Or, or, is it or secular? Just, is it secular? No one has been able to spell that to me. And I don't That's want because nobody can tell you what a Jew is. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> we voted and our members of the Knesset voted during the Rabin government on who's a Jew. Oh good thank you. Yeah. Thank you for some of that. I'm and sure. we saved the reform movement <laughs> during that period. <laughs> but uh, uh, until there's no clarity of what a Jewish state means, I cannot relate to that. I don't know which model I can relate to. You know, in the Supreme Court, Justice uh, Aram Barak in March 2001, in responding to Israel Land Administration, which said that they cannot lease land or uh, rent land or sell land to Arab citizens because they are a national body and the nationality of the state is Jewish. So they are there to serve the Jewish national interest and not the Israeli national interest. If that's Jewish state, I don't want a Jewish state like that. And in fact, that's what also Supreme Court Justice Aram Barak said to them. He said, the Jewish state means that Israel serves as a safe refuge of the Jewish people. Any Jew from anywhere around the world has the right instantaneously to become a safe and secure and part of the natural majority of a Jewish population in Israel. But the state cannot prefer him over its citizens. It has to relate to him as an Israeli and not as Jewish. But isn't the fact that he can come in the first place already a preference? That's exactly the difference. Immigration laws do not relate to citizens. Immigration laws relate to those that are not yet citizens. So do I once you become a citizen, there's no problem. There shouldn't be any distinction. So no. So you're willing to accept a preferential treatment of Jews outside in of Israel? In the immigration up until law, the moment, the right up until the moment they get an Israeli passport. The minute they get an Israeli passport... They are no better than me. Yes. Okay. They're no better than me. I have no problem. That part of my taxes is spent on serving as a homeland for the Jewish people, in giving preference for the Jews to come home. I legitimize that. I support that, and I'm willing to pay my taxes for it. But I'm not, I don't have a subordinate mentality to say that they come from God knows where in order to be better than me, in order to have preferential status than me. I don't think your children are better than my children. I think they sh- they, they, your children deserve the equal status of my children, and my children deserve the equal status of your children. The preferential status once we're citizens, that's already 
ethnocracy. That's not democracy. There's clearly an element of ethno-religiousocracy in, in Israel. We know this, that the, the Zionist project does pose a problem for, for the way you've articulated it, because it's not just about immigration. It's also about the setting the agenda of the state, and that's what you're objecting to. That's where Israel has to mature. You know, and, and, and the, the first half of the life of the country, or even continued until the mid-'80s, every time there was contradiction or clash between Jewish and democratic, almost most of the time, democratic triumphed when it came to the Supreme Court. In the last decade and a half, every time there's a clash, the Jewish triumphs over the democratic, which means it reduces the political status of the Arab citizens. It makes the, the suit, the jacket of Israeli right. identity narrower for us. Of Instead of creating space for the minority, Israel is shrinking the space for the Arab minority. I think that is a, a, a weakness of the Jewish identity of the state. It's not strength. The, the right wing in Israel who are trying to lead this process, they're trying to lead Israel into becoming a different creature, which is not the creature that the founding fathers intended it. The founding fathers of the, of the state of Israel already, in their Declaration of Independence, spoke about social, economic, and political equality. Jabotinsky, yeah, of course. Jabotinsky thought of an Arab prime minister in Israel. Yes, he respected Arab uh, dignity very much. Not just dignity, he spoke about power sharing. That's Jabotinsky. That's the right, father of right wing in Israel. Right, right. That, you know, Ben Gurion at some point spoke about the concept that we should have constitutional uh, structure of power sharing, that whenever we have a, a Jewish prime minister, we will have an Arab deputy uh, prime right, minister. Like, but that didn't work so well in Lebanon. It didn't work. It didn't. <laughs> But it's working very well in Northern Ireland. Yeah, well, Northern Ireland, you're right. They have it's, come to interesting solutions. It's working very well. It's constitutional democracy that you what about, give the, the minority constitutional status. What about the tension between collective rights versus individual rights? And I think sometimes of Canada, which is by any definition a mature, enlightenment democracy, uh, specifically Quebec. Mm -hmm. Quebec imposes a collective preference on behalf of the French speakers onto the English speakers, meaning there are there is identity, politics, and allocation of resources Correct. in specific ways that favor the French collective. Mm -hmm. But being Canada and being a mature democracy, the individual rights of the English speakers of Quebec to pursue their destiny as individuals is protected. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're not under threat. Mm -hmm. And I, I use the word preference pointedly because <coughs> I don't want to run away from the problem you're raising of equality. And I take it very seriously, and, and, and I think our listeners do too. Would that be a conversation that you would find productive or not productive? I think it would be productive. You know, I, I'm practical. I can know. tell. <laughs> if the Jewish nation in Israel wants to have a preference of a kind, the question is what do I get in return? So the uh, Austrian minority in northern Italy got cultural autonomy. Yes. And they got and, tax and control over taxes. That's right. Tax cuts. In Sudtirol in northern the Italy. The same thing in America with the Native Americans. That's right. You gave some reserves and you gave them some kind of right. cultural... And they can hold both. They can be Native Americans and American at will. If there's a need for the 
majority of Israelis to have a certain identity of the state. Yes. You don't want to give up the flag as it is. You don't right. want to give up the national Atifa anthem. Or the menorah and the emblem. Legitimate. If I give that to you, right. what do I get in return? If we want to have a sustainable relationship, it has to be give and take. There has to be a place where I can say, okay, I'm willing to not insist on the, uh, uh, the lyrics of the uh, national anthem. If, for example, I will get an extra phrase that will be brought in, which I can sing, and it will be legitimized as an, as an extra phrase, which happens, by the way, in, uh, in Spain. In Spain, there is, the music is the same, but different words. The Basques sing different. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's one. And there, there are a few lines that are uh, similar for right, everyone, right. and there are a few lines that are separate. Right. You're this willing are, to engage in these creative this conversations. This is the only way we can create a shared society. This is, you know, I I don't think it's it's rational to think that you can dismantle the Jewish majority from its collective rights, majority rights. It's not only minorities that have rights; it's also majorities that have rights. And it's not expected that from the you cannot expect from the Arab citizens just to surrender and say, now we eliminate our own collective needs. You know, the individual rights is easy to negotiate. You know, in any democracy, you say it's equality right. and uh, right. that's easy. The freedom simple. of religion, freedom of expression. Yeah, constitution of... solves that right. very quickly. Amendments for freedoms, and, and that's the easy part. The difficult part is to to negotiate the collective aspects. I don't need Shabbat to be eliminated, but uh, you need to be able to have Friday. I, I don't need all of Friday, and I need to be able to have in uh, Nazareth elite, for example which has 30-some percent Arab citizens, the ability uh, to have a, a kindergarten for the Arab students there as a collective right. Because you know, we're not asking for the sun and the moon. I understand. We're asking to be able to practice our identity next to the Jewish majority. We More than next to, with, with the Jewish sharing it. We're not, we don't want assimilation. Right. We, uh, but, but we are not afraid also of assimilation. You know, we, there is that religious divide that sort of pre prevents the intermarriage between the communities and there's the law that prevents intermarriage between the communities. So I would say mostly the Jews are concerned about intermarriage, not the Arabs are concerned about intermarriage, which is a bit uh, twisted because usually it's the, the minority, minority that's, worried about that's concerned things, right? about uh, assimilation. But that's not what we're looking for. You know, what we're looking for at this stage is, is, is the formal structure of society that allows to live and let live, to be able to allow everyone to exercise their wonderful culture and uh, yeah. the richness of their culture. But I, but I hear you saying something more ambitious than live and let live. When you say shared society, it's, it, that's, that's more demanding of our creative s statecraft than live and let live, because live and let live is actually what we're looking for with the Palestinians and the Palestinian state, which is a divorce. You're right. You're right. I, I, I am looking at something much more engaging. Yes. I hear some, some fundamental optimism that you're saying that the Arabs and the Jews can gain from each other in the state of Israel. They can gain. They can create together. We've been creating together for 67 years. Overall, the story of Jewish-Arab relations in Israel, in my view, is a success. Interesting. So tell me uh, some examples of your work at uh, Givat Chaviva. I am very proud of the work I'm doing because actually it is changing Israeli society day by day. One of the most uh, significant programs is encounters, programs between Jewish and Arab kids, where they come for three days 
that uh, focus on three, three matters. One, the contact aspect, the humanization, breaking down stereotypes. Uh, the second is uh, focusing on discussions about identity, the differences, but at the same time repackaging it because in order to avoid polarization, repackaging it in what we call the shared space. And that's the final, uh, ultimate uh, goal. What, what's the language of interaction English? It's uh, Arabic and Hebrew. Kids are uh, entitled to speak in either language. We have facilitators that translate for them. Usually the meeting starts with the Arabs speaking Arabic, the Jews speaking Hebrew, and in the second day everyone talks Hebrew. And whenever, whenever the Arab kids have difficulty, they ask for uh, translation. Is the level of fluency amongst young Arab Israelis in Hebrew increasing with time? Or is it uh, it's uh, it's not increasing significantly really, and that's the second project that we're taking right now at Givat Chaviva. Uh, we're introducing Jewish teachers in Arab schools to teach spoken Hebrew, because of the quality of Hebrew has not been sufficient for social engagement, employment, uh, or academia. Economic, yeah, academic, sure. And uh, we're trying to increase that because 60% of our workforce has to work in Hebrew-speaking environment. So you need to master the language if you want to succeed. That's the business language of the country. That's the academic language of the country. Uh, the, country. the medium is Jewish teachers. The amazing contribution is not just the language acquisition, but the cultural adaptation that they go through. Suddenly the Jew is not the distant, far person. He's just a police officer or the government agent. But he's your teacher that you see him every single day and you engage in discussions with him about the weather, about the soccer game the, the day before, about the haircut of that teacher, uh, about does she have children, what do they like, what do they have for breakfast. You humanize the other in the process of skill acquisition, which is the language that they're studying there. Another flagship project of Givat Chaviva is pairing Jewish and Arab municipalities together. Municipalities that have shared borders, and which means they have shared interests. Uh, so the first topic is usually the most sensitive one, which is zoning. Uh, Arab towns in Israel sit on 2.3% of the land only, and the Jewish community sits on their 80% share and the rest of the share of the Arab community, 90% of the share of the Arab community. And Arab towns cannot develop without dialoguing with their Jewish neighbors. And that dialogue doesn't exist normally, so we're trying to create it. We have already four pairs of Jewish and Arab municipalities collaborating with each other. But it's not just collaboration with the mayors. We have teachers board, Jewish Joint and Arab Teachers Board, business board, NGO board, people that come and basically discuss the mutual interests of living in neighboring communities. We bring the youth, we bring adult groups, women groups, to get to know who your neighbor is. And out of that, a lot of amazing things happen. If you break that firewall, it's, 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 it's not a physical wall. You know, with the West Bank, we're having a physical wall being built. And inside Israel, it's mostly, mostly a firewall that we put sometimes, maybe because of defensivity, you know, want to be defensive about our identity, or sometimes because of fear. But I have 17 Jewish teachers that are teaching these days in Arab towns, including Umm al-Fahim, which is the hub of the Islamic movement. And everyone was telling me that this project is about to, uh, to fall. It's about to evaporate because you're not going to find Jewish teachers willing to go into enemy territory, as some described it, into Arab towns and villages. None of those teachers dropped out. 
Why? Because they know where they're going. They know the community that they go to. They know the teachers that are waiting for them. Some of the teachers were calling them and asking them, do you want my father or my mother to come pick you up from the main intersection? So suddenly the Arab kids are concerned about the safety of their Jewish teacher more than the, what the Jewish teacher is concerned about himself. The government used to look at the Arab citizens as an economic burden. High poverty rate, 56% poverty rate. And they used to say it's the mentality problem that Arab women do not work, their husbands won't let them to work. So I ran a couple of pilot projects to show that it's not a mentality problem. It's lack of public transportation, lack of daycare centers, which is being a result of government and unequal appropriation allocations. And in the places where we did engage public transportation and daycare centers and a little bit of training in Hebrew and, and computer skills, we were able to increase the, ten, the employment rate of the Arab community significantly. Ten years later, since that engagement, the percentage of Arab women in the labor market increased from 17% to 33%. Almost done. And that reduced the poverty rate from 56% to 46%. So there are working solutions if you're willing to engage in them. So I've been working with a number of universities in Israel and trying to increase the percentage of Arab students in, the, in those universities. The arguments I was getting 10, 12 years ago were even of racist uh, nature. You know, one of the vice presidents of one of the universities in Israel said to me, you're fighting an uphill battle, you're not going to win it because you have an intellectual deficit. Today, within one decade, we increased the, the percentage of Arab students in undergraduate from 10% to 15%, graduate students from 3.5% to 11%, PhD students from 2.5% to 6% in one decade. And out of them, 52% are female students, which tells you problems are solvable. You just need to engage with the right solutions. And the interest of the government, by the way, in those things, it turns those Arab women from welfare recipients into taxpayers. Of course. If that's the reason they come into this, please. Of course. In fact, sometimes self-interest sustains you in a good relationship more than the ideology. Of course. course. And that's why I don't sell ideology. I sell practical solutions. I get it. It's a mutual interest. How can he say no to that? And your proposition is that the fact of mutual interest is enough because it is a fact. Arabs and Jews in Israel, whether or not they like it, whether or not they achieve it, they have shared interests, no matter what. They wake up in the morning, and the reality is what the reality is. 70% of Israeli Jews uh, believe that even after a two-state solution, Israeli Arab citizens are going to remain Israeli citizens, and they should have equality, 70%. 88% of Arab citizens believe that after a two-state solution, they will remain Israelis and that they want to get engaged in cross-community cooperation. That's where the majority of people are. Now, you don't hear that voice very often. You hear mostly the radical voices. And the majority is, unfortunately, always silent majority. But they're not silent in their daily life. On July 10, 2007, the then Prime Minister, Yehud Olmert, said that uh, Israel has been institutionally and deliberately discriminating against its Arab citizens, and which was the first time that Israel went out of the denial stage, that when you say there's discrimination, right. 
people used to say this is Israel bashing. Suddenly the prime minister in office reading from an official text affirms that this, that's the reality. But he continued with two additional uh, statements. He said, one, this has to end. And second, he said, because this is in Israel's national interest. I remember that part. And when you think about what is Israel's national interest in this issue, I say first, the obvious is security. The more integ equal integration, Israel's society becomes more secure. The second reason is economic prosperity. And that's what the OECD report told Israel. You cannot progress as a good economy unless you also attend to your backyard. The third reason is fulfilling the moral values of the state of Israel, the, the values in which the state was established. But the fourth, and I think that's the vested interest of the uh, diaspora Jewish community, I think it's the Jewish interest in this matter. Half of the Jewish people live as minorities around the world. You're not the majority everywhere. You're the majority only in one place, which is called Israel. You live as a minority. Israel has, because of its Jewish nature, it should tell the world what kind of a treatment it expects for its Jewish minorities, for their Jewish minorities, through the way it treats its Arab minorities. It should be the model of how minorities should be treated if it is really concerned about the Jewish people. Because half of the Jewish people are not there. Indeed. Half of the Jewish people are all over the world. If you justify discrimination against Arab minority in Israel, structured and exercised by the Jewish majority, why can't you do it in Orlando against the Jews? If you justify injustice against an ethnic or religious minority, that is losing the Jewish aim of the State of Israel. We can serve the Jewish people in a very good way, in acting as that connector with the Arab world. I said that initially, a satisfied Arab citizen can be the best example of why Jews and Arabs can live together. I want to thank you for offering me many, many practical, applied promises of hope in Israel proper for the shared society of all of Israel's citizens. We're working on it. I can it's tell. happening. I can tell. It's happening. And it's good to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mohammed. And thanks to your listeners for spending their time.